Hej, and velkommen to the history of Denmark. Episode 11. The Geography of Denmark. Hello everyone. After a ski vacation in France and overcoming a huge burden of schoolwork, I am finally ready to bring you some more episodes. I have to admit that I am having some trouble living up to my goal of one episode every two weeks, but I promise you that I am doing all that I can. Last time we looked at the kings Abel, Christopher, Eric V and Eric Menville, all of whom were troubled by either conflicts with their relatives or about the balance of power between the crown and the Duke of Schleswig. We introduced the concept of Dane courts and ended the episode in the year 1316, when civil war broke out between Eric Menville and his brother Christopher, the Count of Helen. In this episode, like I promised in the outro last time, we will take a break from the narrative and look at things like the geography and medieval economy of Denmark, both of which will play a big role in understanding the country's history. Many other podcasts do thorough coverage of geography, and I find that it helps to visualize whatever the subject matter is. A podcast which stands out is the History of Islam podcast by Elias Belhadad, which covered the geography of the Arabian Peninsula in great detail. So today we will do something like that for Denmark, as well as looking at Sweden, Norway, Estonia, Iceland, the Faroe Islands and Greenland. While writing this episode, I find myself wanting to ramble on a bit about cultural issues as well, so not only will we cover geography, but also the relationship between the Scandinavian countries and other details I thought to include. I hope that this will give you a bit of insight into the Nordic countries and make the episode more enjoyable. Before we begin, I strongly recommend that you take a look at the website and find the post for this episode, since it is always useful to have a map when learning about geography. Let us first start with the different land areas that make up Denmark. Today, Denmark consists of the Jutland Peninsula, as well as over 1,400 islands. It is my impression that many Danes from my generation, including myself, mind you, don't often consider the fact that Denmark is actually an archipelago. I believe the reason for this is that we now have bridges connecting all of the major islands, so unless you happen to live on one of the smaller ones, it all seems like one big landmass. In a historical context, the fact that there are so many islands played a major role. Our over 8,000 kilometers of coastline oriented us towards the sea from the very beginning of our existence as a people. If you place yourself anywhere in Denmark today, you will never be further than 52 kilometers from the sea. Probably the best example of the importance of the sea is during the Viking Age, when the Danes sailed from Denmark to raid the coasts and up the rivers of Europe. Now, if you look at the first map, you can see that I have marked the places I mention the most often in the podcast with a label in red text. We have the Jutland Peninsula to the west, Schleswig and Holstein below it, the island of Funen to the immediate east, Sealand a bit further east, and the island of Bornholm all the way on the edge of the map. I have also marked the island of Rügen, which was the Danish possession in the Middle Ages, and of course the base of the Wendish vassals of Denmark and I've also marked the parts of Sweden that were once Danish. These are the three provinces, Scania, Helen and Blekinge. To the west of Jutland we have the North Sea, and to the east we have the Baltic Sea, to which Denmark forms an entrance at the strait between Zealand and Scania. Control of this strait allowed Denmark to charge foreigners at all if they wished to pass through. 
This sound dew, as it is called, was instituted in 1429 by King Eric VII and would make the city of Helsingør famous, as it was here that the foreign ships were forced to wait in harbour until they had paid up. The toll would go on to play a huge role in Nordic power politics, as Sweden sought to be exempted. Probably the most important river in Danish history is the Eider, which marks the southern border of the Duchy of Schleswig. It will be particularly important in the 1800s, when Danish nationalists adopt the slogan Denmark to the Eider, indicating that they believed Schleswig should be a part of Denmark proper instead of a separate duchy. Let us move on to the terrain of Denmark. Our national anthem, There is a Lovely Country, describes the Danish landscape as such. It winds itself in hill and valley. This alludes to the fact that Danish terrain is characterized by being very flat. A typical Danish landscape consists of plains which may wind themselves in hills and valleys, as the song says. This goes contrary to the belief that Denmark looks much like Norway, an impression you may get if you watch the movie Beowulf or the TV series Vikings. Indeed, the highest point in Denmark is only 170 meters, so we have absolutely no mountains unlike our Scandinavian neighbors. I've put a picture of a typical Danish landscape on the website. Denmark is blessed with good soil, climate and rainfall distribution. The general consensus is that we have it pretty easy climate-wise. We never get tornadoes or hurricanes, and we are right on top of a tectonic plate, so we get no natural disasters like earthquakes or volcanic eruptions. All of this meant that the Danes were historically, as they are now, able to make use of their land for agriculture. Today, around 60% of the land is used for this purpose, and although it is difficult to guess how big this percentage was historically, we can infer that pre-modern Danes also had decent opportunities for farming. I mentioned that the Danish landscape is characterized by rolling plains, but we of course also have forests, which today make up about 12% of our land, but historically much more. And we also have our characteristic heaths. You may remember that we have covered several battles named something like the Battle of Grade Heath or the Battle of Low Heath. This is because these battles took place on the Heath of Jutland, which is a remarkable and rare type of landscape. Heaths are characterized by being infertile, since the soil is quite acidic, and by their unique vegetation. The Heath of Jutland is man-made, in that it was caused by deforestation combined with intensive grazing, which denied the trees the possibility to grow back. In the late 1700s and 1800s, the so-called Heath Society attempted to cultivate the Heath of Jutland, but their attempts ultimately failed. Today, the Heath is considered a cultural landscape, a part of nature which defines Denmark, and many areas have been turned into national parks. Our forests are two-thirds needle-leafed and one-third broad-leafed, with spruces and beech trees being the most common of either type. Again, note that I am using current data, so it may have been different historically. Our national anthem refers to our forests as standing with broad beaches, and the last line of the anthem says that Denmark shall endure as long as the beach reflects its top in the blue wave. So the beech tree probably has the bigger cultural importance compared to the spruces. Our vast coasts are quite sandy with many dunes that often stretch inland. Some places, like the island of Moon off the eastern coast of Sealand, you can find limestone cliffs which are geologically interesting. This is because the limestone has allowed for deposits of organisms for over 70 million years. 
These include ancient shellfish, but also things like shark teeth, all of which has allowed scientists to better understand evolution. The very clear layers of rock allow for accurate and easy dating of any findings. I suppose the cliff in question is kind of like the Grand Canyon of Denmark in this regard. I will put a picture on the website, of course. Speaking of geology, the island of Bornholm, south of Sweden, stands out in this regard, because of its distance from Denmark. It is located right on what we call the Fenno-Scandinavian Marginal Zone, a line which divides the island into a northern part, where the bedrock is granite, and a more sandy southern part. Bornholm is also interesting historically, especially during and after World War II, but we have quite a way to go before we get there. Moving on to the provinces of Scania, Hallam and Blekinge, which were Danish up until 1658, but after that point controlled by Sweden. Scania can be divided geographically into a southwestern and northeastern part. In the southwest, the terrain is characterized by plains and is very similar to the Danish islands. The northeast is highlands and is more heavily forested. Halland is, as you can see on the map, directly to the north of Scania. Geographically, it can be divided into the coastal and the interior. The coast is fertile and densely populated, whereas the interior east is characterized by heaths and swamps, and thus a much lower population. Blekinge, the third and final of the three Danish provinces in Sweden, is notable for the many rivers running north to south. The terrain is mountainous in the north, with many needle-leaf trees, a fertile coastal area with beech trees, and the part in between, which has many lakes. All in all, the landscape of Blekinge is considered idyllic and beautiful. Let us now look at Denmark's neighbors. We've already taken a peek at Sweden, so let us cover that country first. Sweden is the longtime rival of Denmark. Our two countries fought in 11 wars between 1521 and 1814. Many of these were simply sparked by a king trying to prove his worth by waging war on the other country. Once we are out of the Middle Ages, you can look forward to many military conflicts. From the 19th century onwards, relations have been much better, and the old rivalry between Denmark and Sweden mostly takes the form of friendly banter and joking these days. Now, I should really be talking about geography, so let us get on with that. Sweden is much larger than Denmark, but less densely populated. The land is not nearly as arable, and the climate is harsher. Sweden also has more lakes and a lot more forests than Denmark. Next up is Norway, which was controlled by Denmark for hundreds of years, but often the subject of many wars with Sweden. It was finally lost in 1814, after the Napoleonic Wars were over, and achieved independence from Sweden in 1905. This is the country you picture when you think about Scandinavian geography. Mountains, fjords, brutal winters, all that good stuff. Most of the population lives around the Oslo Fjord in the southeastern part of the country, but all along the coast you can find other cities such as Bergen, Trondheim and Stavanger. Allow me to make a point about language here. Danish, Swedish and Norwegian are very closely related linguistically. In fact, particularly if you are from Copenhagen, you can probably understand Swedish and certainly Norwegian. When written, Norwegian is almost identical to Danish, and Swedish is also quite similar. Now, the next country we will look at is Estonia. Sadly, the Duchy of Estonia will leave our story in the 1300s, 
since an uprising there will convince the Danes that it is too much trouble, and therefore they will simply sell it to the Teutonic Knights. Still, I thought I would cover briefly what Estonia is like. As you know, Denmark controlled the northern part of Estonia, which faces the Gulf of Finland. Like Sweden, the country is very forested, over 50% in fact, and does not have much arable land. Today, with modern farming techniques, 14% of the land is in use for agriculture. Like Denmark, it is very flat and characterized by its many islands. Now speaking of islands, we should take a look at Greenland, Iceland and the Faroe Islands. Let us take Greenland first. Known in Greenlandic as Kalalit Nunat, meaning the land of the humans, the island was settled by the Vikings in the 10th century, led by the Norwegian Erik the Red. The eastern coast proved too icy to settle, so the Norsemen sailed around Cape Farewell, the southern tip of Greenland, and found the more hospitable western and southwestern coasts. Because they were much more lush than what they had seen earlier, the island was named Greenland, perhaps also as a marketing move to get more settlers to move there. After a few centuries though, the Norse settlements disappeared, and in the 1200s the Inuit came and made Greenland their home. Only in the 18th century did Denmark return to claim Greenland, and it was incorporated into the Kingdom of Denmark. Today, Greenland enjoys home rule since they have their own parliament, but they are also entitled to two seats in the Danish parliament. This political arrangement also goes for the Faroe Islands. Although only 55,000 people live in Greenland today, the island is roughly 50 times as large as Denmark itself. However, the interior of the country is completely uninhabitable. Some Greenlanders favor complete independence, and they may achieve it someday, but for now the country is heavily dependent on a yearly Danish grant of about 85 million dollars. With increasing global warming though, Greenland could face the opportunity for massive growth as new fossil fuel deposits, uranium mines and other natural resources become available. Greenland is also interesting for its connection to the United States. The US has offered to buy the island from Denmark right after World War II for the sum of 100 million dollars, but the offer was declined. In any case, America was allowed to build military bases anyway, and that was probably all they wanted to do to begin with. Because of Greenland and the melting of the Arctic Sea, Denmark is dragged into the international politics of who owns which fishing areas, oil deposits and so on on the North Pole. The two final places we will look at in our geographical and cultural tour are the Faroe Islands and Iceland. The Faroe Islands are famed for their beautiful and unique nature. With almost no trees, the landscape is characterized by cliffs, a rocky soil and many mountains. However, the islands are surprisingly fertile, and especially sheep are well suited to the steep grassy hills and mountains. The islands are located north of Great Britain and southeast of Iceland. As with Greenland, the islands rely a lot on fishing as well, which also leads to a disdain for the European Union with their fishing quotas and restrictions. The yearly practice of Grindedrap, as it is called in Faroese, has outraged animal lovers like Greenpeace. In this yearly event, around 800 pilot whales are trapped in fjords and slaughtered for cultural and historical reasons. Whale meat is a big part of traditional food culture both on the Faroe Islands and on Greenland, but the tradition is met with outrage almost every year when press photos of Red Seas filled with dead whales are published in the Danish tabloids. I will put some pictures on the website of Greenlandish and Faroese nature, but also of the practice of Grendedrap.
Finally, Iceland is a volcanic island located to the southeast of Greenland. The mid-Atlantic ridge cuts right through the island, resulting in the occurrence of many volcanoes and lagoons. Iceland is known for its nature, banking and financial sector, and volcanic eruptions, such as the 2010 eruption of the mountain Eyjafjallajökull, I think it's called, which sent a huge cloud of ash over Europe, suspending nearly all flight traffic in Europe for over a week. The hot springs and geysers are also popular tourist attractions. Iceland was under Danish rule for a long time, but since the late 1800s it gradually received more independence. In 1918 it was granted autonomy, but was still a part of the Kingdom of Denmark. In 1944, when Denmark was occupied by Nazi Germany, Iceland finally separated ties completely and declared itself a republic. Now that we have the tour of Denmark and its neighbors squared off our list, we will move on to the economy and the agriculture of medieval Denmark. In the narrative, we are in the 1300s, so I thought it would be a good time to cover these issues. Between the beginning of the High Middle Ages in the 1060s and the middle of the 1300s when plague struck Europe, the population increased immensely. Most of the people lived in the rural areas where they cultivated the land. Depending on where you lived in Denmark, your farm would focus on different things. In eastern Jutland and on the islands, the peasants grew grain and raised horses and cows. And if you lived on the eastern coast of Zealand, you would most likely participate in the yearly herring catch in the Sound. Fishing was especially common on the western coast of Jutland, where the soil was less fertile. The main exports of Denmark in the Middle Ages were horses, tallow, butter, hides and live oxen. Raising and selling oxen actually became gradually more important as the medieval age went on, but grain cultivation remained the most important area of agriculture. Because of failed harvests though, grain exports were sporadic. During the Middle Ages, as far back as the age of the Carolingians like Charlemagne, the technique of crop rotation was used. We can see that it was practiced in Denmark during the 1200s and 1300s. The method utilizes the nourishing benefits of dividing a plot of land into three parts and then letting a third of the land lie in fallow in turn. This was among the causes of the big population increase. As for technological innovation, new plows with asymmetrical shares made plowing easier and more effective, which was necessary when the crop changed so frequently. In some cases, the peasants plowed a field up to six times every year. The grain they harvested was milled in water and windmills, of which many were built in the medieval period. The peasants rented the land they worked on from the owner and paid with either grain or money, and were thus unlikely to achieve independence as self-sufficient landowners, although some peasants managed to do so. The peasants were often forced to construct castles for the king without pay, as was the case with Eric Menville, who did this exact thing after defeating a peasant revolt in the beginning of the 1300s. I have mentioned the herring trade a few times in the podcast, but I thought I would elaborate on it. As you now know, each year in the Sound, the strait between Sealand and Scania, the Danish peasants would fish for herring and sell them on the Scanian market. This was a tremendous source of income. It is estimated that in the year 1350, around 300,000 barrels of herring were produced, with each barrel containing 1,000 herring. As well as this, textiles, grain, wood, Beer, wine, wax and hemp were also traded at the market. It was the king's duty to secure law and order at the market, 
and in turn he profited from the tax revenues produced by the trading. He also demanded that all payments be made in Danish coin, in a rate he decided himself. If any wares were transported out of Denmark from the Scanian market, they were subject to an extra toll, which can be considered a predecessor to the sound due we talked about earlier. I thought about covering the plague known as the Black Death in this episode as well, but I think I will cover it in the main narrative instead. Please join me next time on the History of Denmark podcast to find out how the civil war between Erik Manville and his brother Christopher plays out, and meet the final Valdemar to become King of Denmark, known by his epithet, A New Dawn. Remember that if you want to look at the many pictures accompanying this episode, the name of my website is www.thehistoryofdenmark.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye.